0: Our message this morning is entitled, Revealing Accusations, Revealing Accusations. And we want to emphasize the word revealing, and in fact, on the live stream, we put that word revealing in quotations so that we would let the reader know that the important word in that sermon title was the word revealing. In other words, we're going to look today at some accusations that were made that revealed some things about the person that had been accused or spoken against. In specific today, we want to look at a couple of statements made by people who were either disgruntled with God or an outright enemy of Christ. But ironically enough, these intended criticisms actually depict traits of God that we take great comfort in and actually rejoice in. And so we look at some things that people said about God in the Word that actually revealed to us some very comforting truths about His nature, His person, and what He is to us as His people. Now, just as a way of an introduction and a preface or a disclaimer, we should never, ever criticize God. There were several people in the Word who, in the record of Scripture, criticized God Almighty. You have... All sorts of people who spoke against him, people who criticized him, people who spoke against his people, and that never ends well for those who criticize him. There are sometimes when people criticize God, that God is so merciful and kind that He even reasons with them. As one of the cases that we look at today will work itself out in our in our hearing. But we should always remember the words of Romans chapter nine. As Paul writes so eloquently and powerfully about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And that's what Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9 is talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. He writes of Jacob that he loved. Paul writes of Esau that God hated, quoting from the Old Testament, appealing to scripture that was already given. And He begins to ask the question, What shall we say then about God loving Jacob and hating Esau? Is there unrighteousness with God? And the answer to that question is always God forbid. Now it's interesting that phrase, that word God forbid, it doesn't actually come from a Greek word or a Greek phrase saying God forbid. The word theos, to my recollection, doesn't occur there. However, that's the word for God, however... It's the in the strongest of terms the word for no. What would be the strongest word for no, the strongest phrase to convey no that we know of in the English language? God forbid. God forbid. What shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Never let it be said that there is unrighteousness with God. As Paul continues to work this thought out, you, said, you find great Phrases such as, so that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Salvation isn't by your will, salvation isn't by your running, your action. Salvation is by God that shows mercy. He says, therefore, he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Verse 18. Now, let's look at verses 19 and 20. As we think about speaking back to God, back talking to God, speaking ill of God or of Christ. Thou wilt say then unto me, Paul is debating a hypothetical opponent, Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? And then Paul says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? And that's a sentence that I hope that we can all remember, that we can all memorize. If you want a memory verse for this next week, Romans chapter 9 and verse 20 is a great candidate for a verse to memorize. Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed him? Say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Now we know that through the overall testimony of Scripture, when we think about those that are changed by God's grace and those that are left in their sins, in fact the wording after this confirms this, Those that are in their sins were placed in that condition by Adam. God didn't have to come down and mold the clay to make a wicked, evil, corrupt clay. Wickedness does not come from God. Wickedness and sinfulness come from Adam. Those that are saved, those that are delivered, are saved, are delivered through the active working of God. And as I understand it, the wording here that he endures with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction is passive the wording here in verse 23 concerning those that are righteous those that are saved is active god endures with much long suffering in other words vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and they were fitted by adam he makes known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared to glory he actively deals with his children that are delivered As vessels of mercy from what they deserve because of their own sinfulness. But in God choosing to deal with one and leaving another where He found them, as it were, in Adam, is God unrighteous to choose what to do with the people that He created in the beginning of time? No, God is not unrighteous to choose what He will do with any of us. God is sovereign. We say that a lot here, and it almost becomes cliche, but God is sovereign. Now, in this recent pandemic, one of the things that I have had to keep in mind, and I would encourage all of you out there to remember, because I'm on social media just like you, and there's no shortage of opinions on social media from the leader of our land all the way to the you know, the lowest lowly individual in the land, me, the chief of sinners. There's, there's no shortage of opinion on what's taking place, what's the cause of everything. And we have to remind ourselves God's will will be done in this world. And if it's not his will that a plague leave, well, it's not his will that a plague leaves. If it's his will to chasten us through this plague, it's his will to chasten us through this plague. And maybe we should stop fighting about it and start hitting our knees because it ain't going away. Who art thou that repliest against God? We have to be very careful when we're speaking about things such as the events in the world today that we don't actually attack God who may be chastening us. Be very careful. What should we say as Christians? Well, thy will be done. Chasten us. Whatever it is that you would have done in the world, God, it is good. It is holy. It is right. Because God always does only that which is good and holy and right. He is just. And his judgment is just. But in this verse, we find this hypothetical answer When men speak against God, when they accuse God of unrighteousness for his sovereignty, for his choosing, for his actions in the world, whatever it is that God has done, who art thou that repliest against God? Who are you that you or who am I that I would answer God and criticize something that God has done? In our message today, we consider two cases of men speaking out against God, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. In both of these cases, we find depicted attributes of God that we consider to be some of the most comforting attributes in all of the Word, some of the most comforting, immutable, unchangeable, inalterable attributes of God that we find our rest in. Our solace in, our solitude, our protection, our safety, as his name is a strong tower that we run into for protection. When we speak against God, just as a note, we occupy a place that we simply need to avoid. You're on dangerous ground when you speak against Almighty God direct you this morning first of all to the book of Jonah chapter 4. If you listen to the radio program here, and I know there are a few of you who listen to the radio program, but I don't know that I don't know that many of us here listen to the radio program. I don't know that even half of us here listen to the radio program. It may be a quarter of people here who do. I know that brother Chambers does because he often comments on it. So I know that we at least have two listeners in Madison County. I tell people when I tune in to make sure they play the right one, the the listenership increases by 50% because instead of brother and sister Jean, uh, brother and sister uh, Chambers, it's me and brother and sister Chambers. So we actually have three tuning in at one time. But we've recently been undertaking a series on the book of Jonah, and we just concluded that on this morning's broadcast. I want to look at, first of all today, some of the words of Jonah as he was angry and he was bitter and actually had the audacity to criticize God for God's dealings with Nineveh. Now, there's no way that we could give you the entire summary of this book and hit every point of it. And if you'd like to dig deeper into Jonah, those messages are on the church website and in the podcast, and you can go to them and listen to them, download them, and I think it would be an encouraging and interesting course of study for you. But just to summarize all of these four chapters in one, God comes to one of his ministers, one of his men, one of his preachers, and he says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and tell them that their wickedness has ascended up before me and that I am going to judge them. By the way, God is a God of judgment and justice. God sometimes judges the world. He judges individual nations. He judges people. He judges cities. He judges states. God judges. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's never vacated that position. We read about this a lot in the Old Testament, and sometimes we think today that God is different, but God, who was in the olden times, is just the same today. I'm the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God did this then, we know that God does this now. God raised up rulers then, God set rulers down then. God raises up nations then, God raises, or He sets nations down then as He does today. Sometimes we look at even our own national history, and I know we celebrated July 4th yesterday, Independence Day, understand based upon what God's Word says about rebellion and the position of government in the world as an institution that God created that we're accountable to and we should submit to unless God raised up this nation providentially the people who founded this nation were outside of the bounds of scripture when they founded it because rebellion is sin and that ought to scare every one of us this morning so I believe that God raised up this nation otherwise that was an act of rebellion against God and that ought to make us alarmed God's still raising up nations. God's still setting nations down. God's still judging nations just as he has always done. We find cases of him judging nations in the New Testament, whether it be Jerusalem, that city that was judged of God in AD 70. You have mystery Babylon that set upon seven mountains that was judged in the book of Revelation and the smoke from the judgment ascended up and people could see it from miles away. People began to talk about it all around the world that had done commerce with them. God still judges the world today. God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Assyria is the superpower of the day and the sworn enemy of the people of Israel in this time. Jonah hears the word of the Lord to go to Nineveh, and Jonah goes the exact opposite direction. And we sometimes wonder, why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Why does he go the clear opposite direction? He gets in a vessel, he gets his own ticket, and he goes down to Tarshish. He says, I'm going the total polar opposite direction than this city of Nineveh, the scope of the known world at the time. I'm going as far away from my task and, in his mind, probably as far away from God as I can go. Which, By the way, you can never go away from God. If you were to go to the very depth of hell, God is going to be there because he is the one that makes hell so terrifying. People think about hell as separation from God, and I'm more inclined to believe that God is the tormentor there in the place where you don't want to be. You can't escape God. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere present, nowhere absent. And so as Jonah attempts to escape God upon the sea, the Wind begins to blow, God sends a storm and he's crossing the Mediterranean and the boat begins to go up and down and water begins to splash onto the deck and the people that are there in the ship are terrified. They're throwing things out of the boat. They're probably throwing water out of the boat. And Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the the ship. You wonder, how can a man sleep through a thing like that? It's well known that if a person has a guilty conscience, they're more inclined to fall asleep if left alone. Investigators sometimes use that. I learned in a criminal investigation class many moons ago in college that it's not admissible in court but an investigator will put you if they suspect you of a crime in a dark cool room and more times than not a guilty person's going to be so afraid that they fall asleep. There were several times in my childhood that I couldn't wait to take a nap because I had an F on the report card. You go home and you fall asleep. Why? Because guilty conscience Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the boat the ship is being tossed to and fro they wake him up arise O sleeper they're calling upon their gods trying to figure out which person had brought this vengeance upon them and Jonah says oh it's me oh it's me they begin to cast lots the lot falls upon Jonah Jonah says throw me overboard they throw more things overboard Jonah says throw me overboard they throw Jonah overboard Jonah thinks he's going to die These people are so moved by that that they begin to fear God and call upon God. They make vows to God and they sacrifice to God. And they were, as far as we know, outsiders to the nation of Israel. They weren't Old Testament Jews, but they began to worship. They were changed by that experience with God on the sea. Jonah floats and all of a sudden a great fish, Jonah calls it. Jesus referred to it as a great whale. The division between fish and whale wasn't something until, wasn't something that came until later. Whatever it was, it was a giant sea creature that was prepared by God and it swallows Jonah up. We often think of that fish as a symbol of judgment, but in actuality it was a symbol of deliverance because that was the only thing that kept Jonah from dying. He takes him to the depths of the sea. Jonah begins to pray to God, I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. He repents. The fish vomits him up on dry ground. Jonah goes into Nineveh, and a day's journey begins to preach that God is going to judge them, and God's going to destroy that city. The people hear it. The people move with fear. The people turn from their sin. The king hears it. The king proclaims a fast. Man nor beast was able to eat. This fast even applied to the livestock. They put on sackcloth, they put on ashes, they humble themselves, they hit their knees because they're afraid of God and His judgment. Couldn't you imagine if a preacher came and proclaimed that message to America today? We're America, where we're proud to be Americans. We don't hit our knees, Oh, we don't submit ourselves. We're, we're going to tackle this with American greatness. This is the superpower of the world. They hear that message, they hit their knees, they're terrified at what God could do to them. Understand, it doesn't matter how many missiles we have, how many vessels we have, how many ships we have, how many soldiers we have. We are no match for the divine judgment of God. And Nineveh understood that. I don't think we yet understand that. I think that we view ourselves as Americans as some sort of Theocracy that can never be wrong, that's always right, that's always good, when, no, many times we are just like every other nation in the history of the world. We're a sinful people. We're full of sinners, full of iniquities. I love our country, and I love our freedom. But we're not always right, and sometimes we bring God's wrath upon us. That's a hard pill to swallow. Nineveh hears this, and they hit their knees. They fall on their faces before God. Jonah is a successful preacher. Now, if I come to you and I preach the Word and you say, Pastor Winslet, that encouraged me, that edified me, that taught me, my life is going to be forever different because of the message that that you preached. I would leave this place on cloud nine. Somebody listening on the radio, watching a live stream, your messages have been impactful. If I lived in Huntsville, I'd come to your church Nothing makes me more excited than to hear that. Jonah preaches. They hear His Word. They receive His Word. They turn from their sin. But instead of being happy about it, Jonah is mad at God. Wow! Verse 10 of Jonah 3, God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them and He did it not. Verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He did not want Nineveh to be spared because Jonah hates Nineveh. Hatred in the heart of a man of God is a very, very bad thing. We cannot love people and preach to them through love to turn from their sin to Christ while we simultaneously hate them. Paul said in 1 Corinthians thirteen that he, if he could speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love charity, he is but a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. He is nothing but a noisemaker. You've got to love the people that you preach to. Jonah doesn't love them. Jonah hates them, and Jonah is mad that they are spared from the judgment that was to come. This was a very wicked city. It was a place that was full of violence read the book of Nahum, which is in a generation, 100 to 150 years from this time, century, century and a half later, God finally did judge them. There was idolatry, there was fornication, harlotry, I believe is what the Word of God says. There was violence in the streets of Nineveh, and God would finally judge them. This was not a permanent repentance. We've seen this many times in our country. I've read the biography of several different ministers, and In the day of Wilson Thompson, a great godly man in our order of faith, an old Baptist, born in the late 1700s, ministered in the 1800s, there was a massive earthquake that hit the Midwest and lives were destroyed, properties were destroyed, homes were destroyed. And the people of America in that day took it as a sign of divine wrath and they hit their knees and it was a time of great repentance in our country. Sometimes affliction on a national level or a regional level leads to repentance. After 9-11, September 11, 2001, you, you saw people hit their knees in this country, but it was far more short-lived than some of the afflictions that our nation suffered in our history. Over time, sin callouses us and it hardens our heart against God, and we no longer see how offensive sin is to God. And you find that the harder the heart, the greater the affliction has to be to bring us back to where we ought to be. Jonah was exceedingly displeased. He was very angry. He was not happy with God for sparing Nineveh. Now, Jonah begins to pray unto God, and as we pointed out on the radio series through this, chapters 1 and 3 contain narratives. Chapters 2 and 4 contain conversations between Jonah and God. Jonah prays. Now, he's angry, and he's disappointed, he's displeased, but he prays to God. But listen to what he says. Now, we're looking at complaints and accusations against God that reveals characteristics that we find in God that are comforting Jonah says to God, Can you imagine a New Testament Christian saying, God, I have a fault with you, and this is what it is. He prayed unto the Lord, and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Did I not know this was going to happen? Therefore fled I unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, great kindness, and repented thee of the evil. Lord, I knew you were going to forgive them. That's why I didn't even want to come here. I wanted them to be destroyed. In fact, Jonah goes out after this and makes a booth on a hill outside the city of Nineveh where he can sit and watch to see, as it were, proverbially, happy Fourth of July, the fireworks show. And there were times that God sent the fireworks show. Sodom and Gomorrah, which stand as a testimony of God's wrath against unrighteousness for all time. There were times when people, prophets of Baal, came to Elijah and they say, Oh man of God, oh man of God. And he says, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and devour you all. And the next thing you know, boom, fire comes down from heaven and devours them all. That happens three times. The third time they're like, look, we just want to talk. Please don't send fire from heaven. And he hears them. There were times in the ministry of the apostles, James and John, they began to ask, Lord, are we going to call down fire from heaven on people now? And Jesus says, you know know not what manner of spirit you're of. I've not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It's not why I'm here. This isn't the purpose. This isn't the purpose. Jonah wanted to see the fireworks show. Jonah is so angry. He says in verse three, "Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better to die than to live." And the Lord replies, "Doest thou well to be angry?" God would cause a plant. He refers to it. The KJV refers to it as a gourd, which indicates it's some sort of a running vine, or perhaps a castor oil plant. It's a material that grows up. And it gives him shade and then God sends a worm to destroy it the next day. And Jonah is mad now because the gourd's gone. And God basically asked him the question, if you were mad that a gourd is destroyed, shouldn't you be happy that a city full of people that can't discern between their left hand and their right hand are spared and also much cattle, livestock, living creatures? Shouldn't you be glad that a city found repentance and turned from their sin? fact is, Jonah was mad, but listen to what Jonah says in this accusation against God. I knew that you're a gracious God. I knew that you're a merciful God. I knew that you're slow to anger. And I knew that you're of great kindness. And I knew that if they turned from their sin, that you would actually spare them and not judge them. The thought occurred to me as I was studying through this for this radio series that these traits that Jonah is displeased with God about, Jonah knew them. Now, these traits are no secret to the Old Testament Israelite. Sometimes we think of God in the Old Testament as a God that is a God of judgment and the law is harsh, and if you do this, the penalty is death. If you do that, the penalty is death. And we think that God is somehow not merciful and not gracious, but why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Because he knew this about God. God was gracious in the Old Testament. God was merciful in the Old Testament. God was kind in the Old Testament. God was slow to anger in the Old Testament. So many times, God, as it were, repented of the evil that he would do unto them. His mind was to judge the children of Israel so many times. And when they hit their knees or when men of God began to intercede on their behalf, God would turn in the sense that He would not punish them the way that He intended to punish them. And He would repent of the evil that He thought to do unto them. Now, we know that when God repents of the evil, this is a great verse that demonstrates it, He repents of the evil that He thinks to do unto them, not because He changes His mind or He changes who He is. God is immutable. His... Repenting of the evil, as it were, turning from judging them the way that he would have judged them, is built on, based on, his immutable attributes. What are his immutable attributes? Kindness, mercy, grace, slow to anger. And so he is so long-suffering to us as his creatures, and especially to us as his children that it takes far more stimulus, as it will, to elicit his wrath than it does please for mercy to receive mercy from him. And this is a story of mankind from the beginning. We do so much that des- deserves God's wrath, and he is so kind and so merciful and so gracious that when we come to him and we say, God, forgive me, well... It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. As Lamentations 3 says, great is his faithfulness. It's amazing that Jonah complains about the very attributes of God that deliver all of us from the lake of fire. His grace, his mercy, his kindness, and his long-suffering. That is to say, his slowness to anger. Another one of these that we want to consider is a critique of Christ Himself in the New Testament. We want to turn first to the book of Matthew chapter 11 and then to Luke chapter 15. And we find both of these critiques in those places. As we turn to Matthew chapter 11, the backstory of this chapter is familiar to us because it was last year that we studied through the miracles of Christ as reported to Disciples of John the Baptist who come to Jesus and they say, Art thou he that should come or should we look for another? And Jesus sends these men back to John and he says, Tell them all of these miracles. Tell them that I've healed the sick, that I've raised the dead, that I've given sight to the blind, that I've opened the ears of the deaf, that the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Tell them the miracles that I've done. Tell them, tell John what I have done. But this prompts Jesus to begin speaking, and in his message, in the words that he speaks publicly to these disciples, to his disciples, and everyone else who's there listening, he begins speaking about himself, he speaks about John the Baptist, and he speaks about the world in general. I want to look at verse 16 and continue through verse 19. As Jesus says what he says here, as he preaches this message, as he talks about John, as he talks about himself, He says, but whereunto shall I liken this generation? And as he says this generation, he has reference to the nation of Israel, the Jew at the time. Now there were many, many in the nation of Israel who believed the testimony that Jesus delivered. There were Jews in Jesus' day that longed to see him. There was a woman in the temple named Anna. There was a man in the temple named Simeon. And when Jesus' parents bring baby Jesus in... His mother, Mary, his adopted father, Joseph. They bring Jesus in and these two people rejoice. They were waiting for Christ. You have the shepherds at his birth. You have people that marvel in the synagogues and in the temple at the teaching even of the 12-year-old Jesus. You have the apostles. You have the women who were always there. Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, his mother, You have all of these disciples, and even among the Pharisees like Nicodemus, that believed in him. But largely, the people of his nation rejected him. So much so that the majority of his ministry was spent not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. Not there in the place where the temple of God was, not the place where David reigned. But in the city of Galilee, the city of Galilee, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus spent his ministry there preaching to people. He would say about his home, or I should say rather the city of Jerusalem, prophet is not without honor save among his own people. In other words, when Jesus preached, they would say, is this not the son of Joseph and Mary? Who does he think he is? prophet is not without honor save among his own people to his own kinsmen, to his own family, in his own city. Whereunto shall I liken this generation? What should I compare these people to? It is like this generation unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you. And ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. Jesus says you in this generation are like people who have been performed for, but were not moved by the performance. What he's doing here is he's giving a comparison for preaching. He has piped, as it were, but they didn't dance at the tune. He has mourned, but they have not lamented. Now, referencing piping and not dancing, this is a little easier for me to understand as a musician. There have been performances that we play where the audience yawns through the performance. And if you're a musician, nothing is more agonizing than when the audience yawns through the performance. You get up there and you play a blistering trumpet solo and you get done with it and you look around and you're like, nobody cares. I care. I thought it was great. (laughs) You play a beautiful ballad and you look out at the end and they're like talking to each other. I refer to that as when you're the glorified iPod. And depending on what type of audience you're playing for, if you're at the feature and it's a concert, and people are there either in an auditorium or on lawn chairs and they're listening to you, they pay attention to you and they clap when you're done. If you're playing a dinner where they're talking, you're a glorified iPod. They could not care less that you are in the room. As long as the music continues, they're happy. They don't even look at you half the time. Ever so often... Out of guilt, oh yeah, 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 they're playing, okay, let's clap. And then they go back to their meal, they go back to their conversation. That's musician's life, baby. We've piped, you've not danced. We've performed music for you, and it didn't affect you. It was ineffectual. Jesus compares his ministry to the nation of Israel in a similar way to a musician who performs and the audience doesn't care. There are seasons in every minister's life where that's how they feel, by the way. This recent episode has been one of the most challenging seasons for ministry in our country ever. Because there are periods of time when we preach to a camera. And I can see you here today. Now, I see, I see you from here up, so I don't know if you're happy. I don't know if you're sad. Unless you nod or, or you, you laugh or give me thumbs up, you know, I get two thumbs up. I, I don't know. But at least I can see you. But there were six weeks and I'm preaching to that blue light bulb under the camera, and, and that's it. And if you didn't click like or you didn't comment or you didn't share or you didn't text me, I don't even know that you're there. And, and you have the old saying, if a tree falls in their woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? That's how I feel if I don't know that you're there. And you can begin to think like, man, I'm piping and nobody's dancing. This season, and, and I'm leaving, I'm going off, off the cuff, off script, whatever. This season is the single most challenging season for our churches since probably the Civil War. I don't dare compare it to that. But as far as church growth, as far as evangelism, as far as church community, as far as me laboring in your life, if you go to the hospital, I can't go. I can't visit you. I can call you and text you and talk to you, but I can't go sit there with you. Oh, what a burden that is. It's terrible. It's the worst. This is the worst. Michael Scott quote anyway that's the worst No, don't like that it really is the worst and sometimes we feel like we pipe and nobody dances because we're all in our little social distance compartmentalized box wearing a mask or watching at home and it's just hard it's hard Nothing about life right now is easy for us. We are social creatures. As bad as that is, imagine the people who are sitting in ICU. You know, I'm kind of whining. Imagine what it's like on a ventilator. I know a sister in a church. I know a couple of elderly sisters from the Birmingham area that have had this. One passed away from it. One was in ICU for weeks, and she thought she was in prison because she was in her 90s. She had no idea where she was. Her family couldn't see her. People that are wearing hazmat suits come in and tend to her and go back out. And she had no idea where she was. Imagine how difficult, how sad, how confusing that is for so many people. That's a tragedy. It really is terrible. Jesus says we've piped and you've not danced. We've mourned and you've not lamented. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a devil. What did the nation of Israel, many of them, say about John? Now, the people gladly listened to him. He was a popular preacher. His popularity was so great that the Pharisees came out to his baptisms and desired baptism from John, though they didn't care a thing in the world about him just because it was popular. And what did John tell him? Well, I'm glad you're here. No, he said, you generation of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, John, that's how to win friends and influence people. That's got to make you be the popular preacher in town. You know, preaching, I get dangerous when I'm off the cuff, preaching in this country has become so lukewarm and wimpy and politically correct that there are megachurch pastors who can't even post on Facebook without being attacked and losing... Losing opportunities to help people in the community because they liked a post that was politically incorrect. They just happen to be conservative. Preachers that stomp around on the soapbox issues of the day, you don't have to wonder where they stand. And never is there a controversy. A pastor liked something that was politically incorrect. Oh my goodness. What would you think he was going to say if he believes the Word of God? I mean, he's going to say that marriage is between a man and a woman for a lifetime. He's going to say that we're created in the image of God, that we didn't evolve from apes. He's going to say it's wrong to murder a baby. You don't have to wonder where he stands if he's a man of God. You didn't have to wonder what John thought when the scribes and Pharisees showed up to his baptism, you snakes. John came neither eating and drinking, and they say he has a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold a gluttonous, a gluttonous man, and a wine bibber. Now John lived his life very similarly to those who had taken the vow of the Nazarite. Nazarite vow. They did not partake of any alcohol or strong drink their entire lives, and John lives surviving on locust and wild honey, wearing a leather girdle crying in the wilderness. He cried in the wilderness. I mean, this man is lifting up his voice and he's preaching like the old prophets. People came out unto him to see him. Jesus indicates that. What came you out to see? What are you looking at? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That means that Jesus, when he was with his disciples, if The beverage that many of them drank, because it was the only safe thing to drink at the time, was wine, many times. And so Jesus would partake of a glass of wine with his disciples. That's what he takes at communion and passes around. And when people saw that, because he ate with them, because he drank with them, they weren't having drunken parties. They were not engaging in drunkenness, but they did participate in that beverage. They looked at Jesus and they said, he's a drunkard and he's a gluttonous man. Jesus would address this even to the disciples of John. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? Well, there'll be plenty of fasting when the groom is gone by the bridegroom. But while the groom is with the bridegroom, why would she fast? Why would she mourn? There'll be time for mourning, but when Jesus is there with the bride, it is not a time for mourning. It's a time of celebration. Let that frame your thought on heaven. It will not be a time of mourning. It will be a time of celebration. And one of the things that we have depicted in heaven in the book of Revelation is a marriage feast of the bride and the bridegroom. I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but I know it's compared to a marriage feast. That's a celebration banquet. Jesus comes eating and drinking, and they say that He is a wine-bibber and a gluttonous man. Listen to this next one. A friend... Of publicans and sinners. First of all, publicans are tax collectors and they were despised not only by reason of the fact that they take up taxes. Nobody likes tax collectors. Is that not the person you'd least like to speak to in the entire country is the IRS? I hate dealing with the IRS. It's largely automated now so you push a button and the computer tells you what you did wrong. And what you need to do, you request a document and it takes weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to get a document. But if they need a document from you, you better tell them or else. If they owe you money, we'll get around to it. If you owe them money, here they come. Knock, knock, knock. Well, the publicans are tax collectors, but not only are they tax collectors, they often padded their wallets by taking out money on top. So people despised them. But Jesus was friends... Publicans, people that everybody else despised, people that were sinful people. Notice beyond that he's the friend of sinners. My mind immediately goes to the occurrence of the woman from the city who comes to Jesus as he's eating with Simon, a Pharisee in Simon's home. They're sitting at the table, sitting at meat, and at that day, more than likely you have a table there and you're you're pulled up to it. You're either kind of lounging on your your side leaning on it or you're on your knees and your feet are behind you. They didn't have the tables that we have today the way that we have them today. Jesus is there at that table eating and this woman from the city comes in and she has the audacity to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with the hair of her head. And the Pharisee Simon begins to criticize Jesus. If this man, if, if he were really a prophet, he'd know what type of woman it is That's doing this to him. Jesus rebukes the man and points out that you didn't give me water to wash my feet. Jesus walked through the dust and the grime of the city streets to get there. His feet were filthy. And she wept all over them, wept all over them, and her tears fell all over them. It's a muddy, nasty mess. She dries it with her hair. Imagine how nasty her hair looked. Ladies, I know how much care you take over your hair. How many minutes did you spend this morning looking at it in the mirror, getting it just right before you came here? Some of you may have wavied it. Some of you may have straightened it. Some of you may have washed it and conditioned it and blow-dried it and everything else. Scripture says a woman's glory is her hair. And this woman takes her hair and dries the muddy mess off of his feet. Muddy, matted, nasty mess. And what that was was an act of worship. Jesus tells her that her sins are forgiven her. What a thought is that. Jesus is the friend of publicans and sinners. That was meant as a condemnation of him. And yet to us, it's possibly one of the most encouraging, comforting Titles of your Savior in all of the Word of God. He's the friend of sinners. Now, this concept of God being the friend of a sinner is not new. In the Old Testament, you have several people that are depicted as being the friend of God. You have Enoch that walked with God and God took him. Genesis five twenty-two through 25, he was not. He walked with God and yet he was not for God took him. He walked with God. Think about the way that you walk with a friend as you fellowship with a friend, as you spend time with a friend. Jesus and Enoch, because when God reveals himself to men in the world, it is through the person of Christ Jesus. He walked with God. And God took him. We read in Hebrews 11, by faith, Enoch was translated that he shouldn't see death. Abraham in James 2.23 is called the friend of God. and That's a quotation of 2 Chronicles 20 in verse 7. As the children of Israel prepared for battle against Moab and Ammon, Jehoshaphat begins to pray to God and he does so and he appeals to God's mercies that he'd given earlier to men of God and he refers to Abraham and God's watch care over him in his life and calls him the friend of God. David is referred in 1 Samuel 13, 14 as a man after God's own heart. David is a man that was a friend of God and God was a friend to David. One thing that I want you to get out of today's message is that if God be for us, who can be against us? God is your friend. Now, we have to be careful because in this modern, theologically watered-down version of Christianity, we think of God as our buddy. Yesterday, we went into a fireworks store, the older boys and I, and we were trying to buy some things to blow up, and we went into one store, and there were probably, I don't know, a hundred people in two lines. And there were less fireworks left on the shelf than there were people in the store. But as we were leaving that place in a hurry because nobody's wearing masks and they're bumping into me. And I'm just like, back up, bro. There's a, a young lady that had a shirt and it said, God is dope. Ethan's like, do you see that shirt? I'm like, thank God for masks no one can see the things that i mutter when i walk through stores we should never be so irreverent to god as to say something like god is dope we think about god being our buddy and that's to water down this image of this incorruptible god this king this almighty this ancient of days that occupies the throne in glory but at the same time he's our father he's our husband He's our friend. We have this great contradiction almost, this contrast between these positions that are occupied by our God as to be the king of the universe, the judge of the quick and the dead, but at the same time, our husband, our shepherd, our friend. He's the friend of sinners. Now, I thought a lot about the incarnation of Jesus this week because I finished a book that had been on my desk for several several months about Jesus' incarnation. And there are things that His incarnation, doctrinal points that we can read about, that His incarnation helps us to know. And of these, the fact that He is our friend, I think it gives us a real vibrant way to understand this Role of God in our lives as we study the person of Christ Jesus, the incarnation of the Son of God. As we see Jesus sitting with and eating with sinners, as we see Him receiving them, loving them, healing them, caring for them, As we see him condescend to such a low estate, we find a glimpse into the heart of God, even to the friendship that we have with our God. I want you to think of God as your greatest friend, as your oldest friend. In fact, the book of Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 24 tells us that there is a friend that sticks closer than even a brother. Brothers are made for adversity. Sometimes we misinterpret that as we read of brothers that didn't get along, like Jacob and Esau. But brothers are intended to be a person to go through the adversity of this life with. And I can tell you, like the sons of thunder, Josh and I have each other's backs. And when we were growing up, you know when I get a certain look on my face, you're about to get a story. When we were growing up, I could beat him up anytime I wanted to beat him up. We knocked out teeth. He chipped this tooth. I knocked out his first tooth. Fist fighting, he kicked me. That's why I've got the chip in this tooth. Mom would be waking up in the middle of the night saying, boys be nice, boys be nice, because we were like a couple of tornadoes that just ran into each other all day. But any time anybody in that neighborhood messed with him, That person and I were going to fight because brothers are born for adversity. You didn't cross my little brother. I'd come at you. And we're still that way today. Talk about circling the wagons, we got each other's back. But there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Who is that friend? That's your God. The one that walked with Enoch. The one that walked with Abraham. The one that walked with David. And in the ministry of Jesus, we find these beautiful glimpses into Jesus being the friend, even, of sinful people like you and me. What these people intended as a criticism reveals to us one of the most beautiful traits that your Savior has with regards to your relationship with him, that he is your friend. Now, we'll close today by simply reminding you of... A passage in Luke 15. I intended to speak about these two parables, and we don't have time to do that, and so we'll leave it as something that you can read on your own. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. He's the friend of sinners. Jesus simply says unto them, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over the ninety and nine just persons." which need no repentance. You might wonder, is that talking about when He rescues us from death and sin to life in Christ? Or is it talking about when we wander from the fold and He brings us back to the fold? It doesn't matter. Jesus leads His sheep back to His fold. And when He does that, there is joy in heaven over a sinner that repents. Why? Because Jesus is the friend of sinners.